This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. So I heard a very interesting thing on the radio. On the radio? And by radio, I mean a podcast, internet radio. There's no radio anymore, is there? No, um, there is. It's just not as cool as podcasts. This uh, stat that I heard said that in 2018, 25,000 women are running for public office. That is great. The largest amount in the history of our country, the other year that came close to women in one year running for public office was, I forget the year, but it was 914. Oh my God. Wow. So the, the, there's a huge, huge movement of women wanting to run for and be in office. That's the idea. That's, that's really exciting to hear that number. Isn't that cool? Now, I I don't know what politics these uh, 25,000 women have. I don't know what level of government they're running. Uh, this study included everything from, you know, federal government to school to boards. block captain, and, yeah. Yeah, and everything in between. But it really made me sort of think about this past year when America decided to elect a open, raging misogynist as president and the reaction to voting a misogynist over a woman and what that has meant our democracy. And I think this is the first time in a long time where I really felt hopeful that the apathy of the, of so many people of my generation has been shooken out and that we are now in the precipice and moving forward of understanding that those of us that want to live quote unquote woke lives are, are the majority. And if we all run and we all work at this, we can run this country. And I felt like, all right, I felt pretty cool about that. And it made me think about the narratives of women. That is amazing. I'm really excited that you brought up that statistic, which is really exciting. And the idea of women running for office in large numbers is one of the biggest and uh, most important steps to uh, you know, reinforcing and and making our interests a priority for um, for political offices and office holders. The other, uh, you know, we can't discount the other major swing that is happening is starting from Hollywood, but is erupting all over the nation. Is the Me Too movement and the Times Up movement, which are empowering women to speak up and use their voices to call out the men who have been abusing their power who have been sexually harassing, sexually abusing, and sexually assaulting women uh, from positions of power for so long and bringing those voices out of the darkness and elevating them uh, and shining a light on the you know, darkest secrets of even our most beloved industries. Oh, yeah. And, and, and as, I, as I kind of meditate on this, I wonder where storytelling and what storytelling has to offer in this uh, sort of renaissance of feminism, if you will, 
this third and third wave, fourth wave. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know the waves. Haven't counted the waves <laughs> uh, and I'm new to the movement. I've never really considered myself a feminist before recent history um, in which I met my beloved Laurel podcast co-host and future wife who really kind of opened my eyes, uh, so to speak, to the fact that I actually was a feminist in philosophy this whole time. I just didn't know what that meant. Yeah. Well, welcome. Welcome to the movement. Well, and the other thing that I want to say is we're on a uh, the verge. By the time this podcast is posted, it will be a year since the Women's March. And there's another Women's March happening on the anniversary. We're recording this on Friday, and tomorrow morning there's another uh, Women's March. And it really made us think about a particular narrative that's making its way through television right now yeah. that we wanted to discuss. Yeah, enough intro. We um we want to talk about HBO's Big Little Lies, which swept the Emmys and swept the Golden Globes. So hopefully by now you have watched it. Uh, and if you haven't, I would definitely recommend it's seven episodes. Just get in there, get on your HBO Go, HBO Now, and blow through it as fast as we did. Yeah, and it's not it's not a lot of TV. It's a contained mini series. Um, I and it was on HBO. It stars Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman, um, Alexander Skarsgård, um, Jillian you know, Woodley, Adam Scott, uh, yeah, Laura thank Dern, you. Zoe, Zoe Kravitz. Kravitz. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just like star studded, and it is it is about the lives of these Monterey women, and. Um, we're going to deconstruct it, so we're going to throw the spoiler wall up now. We're not going to yeah. hold anything back. This is going to be spoiler-filled. And if you haven't watched it yet, take the time to watch it and then come back to this episode because we're going to just ruin it for you. And it's, yeah. it's one of those things that you really don't want to have ruined. Yeah, yeah. The surprises are all delightful and, and magical and amazing. So um, get in there and watch it and then come back and join us. And, uh, yeah. Spoiler wall up. If you're still listening, um, we're going to spoil it for you. So it's on you. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So, yeah, we want to talk about Big Little Lies. And there's a few uh, entry points that we have to talking about this series. Um, from our perspective, a lot of those viewpoints have to do with gender and have to do with how this show is in conversation with uh, masculine, masculinity and femininity um, in, a, in a way that hasn't been explored in mainstream media in a long time or ever, maybe. Um, so I'm interested in uh, the archetypes that it presents, the uh, woman archetypes and the male archetypes that it presents, and how it uh, either upholds or deconstructs them. And we're going to kind of take you through some of those characters and learn what we can about uh, the human condition, learn what we can about psychology through those characters, right? Yeah, and I think this uh, this seven-episode miniseries is a treasure trove of things to mind and to reflect. I think it is a very significant, very well done, and very um, powerful work of art. And I hope when you guys watch it, you agree. And it really made me, just kind of as a man, kind of like, and, and everything in the past year has made me think as a man, like what is my role in this movement as a man who identifies with the masculine energy type? Yeah, and who hasn't always made the right decisions and hasn't always been a perfect, awesome man. And, uh, you know, it, it makes me strive to be a better version of myself and makes me want to atone for the mistakes of my past. That's amazing. And Big Little Lies, above anything else, is a character study, right? It is a deep dive into the complexities and the intricacies of, uh, of characters who present as potentially one or two dimensional, but then inside they have these really deep and, and complicated lives and inner, inner minds. Um, it takes place in the town of Monterey, which is an idyllic, beautiful beach town that is for the rich and powerful. It is a privileged society and it is a mostly white society that we are appearing in on. And it's on the brink of, it's on the edge of the waves that continue to undulate throughout the uh, cinematography of this show. So we are constantly uh, served the undercurrent of this beautiful beach and the sort of Pax Americana that, that lives on top. Uh, the story, just to kind of catch everybody up, deals, it's framed by a murder. We know from the beginning that someone is dead. Somebody died at the um, PTA 
uh, fundraising gala for the public school. And we don't know who it is, and we don't know who committed the murder, but we know that somebody is dead. Uh, and we're taken in through the, the lives of uh, these five women who all have first grade children. And so they're thrown into the same situations together and have to deal with the fact that they're going to butt heads and their children are going to have drama and they're going to have drama in between themselves. So we learn, a, we learn quite a bit about um, each of these characters and their home lives. And then this kickoff of, um, of violence happens when we experience one of the children at orientation day uh, gets choked by another student off camera and points out uh, another child as the bully who happens to be the son of the like, brand new to town working class uh, uh, Jane Chapman, who's played by Shailene Woodley. And what unfolds is this really quiet and uh, and gripping drama about violence between children, violence between adults, domestic violence, uh, and the relationships between men and women as they uh, as as they you know unfold as adults, and then how they mirror in children, and it's really haunting the kind of things that we see characters plumb, the depths that we see them plumb. Um, but yeah, that's just a little little good summary overview. for you. Yeah, good, absolutely good overview. And um, yeah, and the entire time you're watching it, you're trying to think, you know, it's an interesting story, artifact, and device or plot to say we start kind of with the end with a murder and then we go backwards and we get to think while we watch it, who's going to be killed. Right. It builds the suspense and, and mystery. You know, one thing I was struck with when watching it was that if this were just a show without knowing that the murder would be there, it would be interesting and compelling. Yeah. But knowing the suspense of a murder is going to happen at the end that's going to end with it. And we're going to see who is the killer and who is the victim was one of the major dramatic hooks. Yeah. And I think one of the major themes of the show is aggression. Yeah. And how people deal with aggression, how men deal with aggression, how women deal with aggression, how and these how children, how yeah. children deal with aggression and don't deal with aggression. And ultimately where does aggression come from? Is it something within you or more that, you know, everyone feels aggression, but more else, more in, more after, more whatever. I, I'm just stumbling. <laughs> more over. How one channels their aggression and deals with it. Yeah. You know, there is a uh, character named Perry played by um, Alexander Skarsgård who beats his wife. His wife is Nicole Kidman Celeste. In the performance of her career. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Well, yeah, performance of her career. Yeah, you know? Yeah. It's that kind of threw me there. But absolutely the best. I, I totally agree with you. I've always been a fan, but that is her me best too. performance. Yeah, it's wow. It's just heart wrenching. Yeah. And, um, you know, Alexander Skarsgård's character beating Nicole Kidman slash Celeste mercilessly and horribly. And then not only that, we get to get into the psychological dynamic and that we get into their therapy sessions. We get to see how he manipulates her, we get to see her guilt. We get to see her lashing back out and trying to, you know, gain some sort of power in this dynamic. And how deeply the violence is tied to a psychosexual dynamic as well. Because oh, yeah. for them, the uh, the violence and the pain and the anger always leads to a, a passionate embrace. And that leads to more guilt and more anger and more of this vicious cycle. And really that ends in a simulated rape. Right. You know, yeah. and at some points, maybe actual rape. Yeah. You know, so he would, uh, Perry would lash out, pick a fight for no reason. It would culminate. She would try to fight back. He'd get violent. She would get violent in response. And then he would get turned on and try to have sex with her. And she would try to stop him. And then eventually she would relent and they would have sex. And at the start of the show, she kind of says that she likes this. Right. And as she is learning more about herself and as she comes to realize I, this is just fucking totally fucked up as, and she always knew it once she like peels back the layers of denial through therapy, she starts to try to assert herself and realize she needs her own life. Right. Outside of this monster. Um, anyway, let me back up here uh, a few steps and I'd like to uh, discuss a good friend of the show, Sigmund Freud. 
<laughs> Sigmund Freud has this theory about violence and trauma, and it is a triangle that in every violent act, there are three people that experience trauma. First is the victim of the violence. So if Laurel picks up a hammer and hits me on the head, I am the victim of that because I got hit on the head. Right. The second person in that triangle that also experiences the trauma would be the witness who sees it, who sees this violent act, who sees this act of aggression. And then based off of that, they feel traumatized. And then third is the person who actually does the act. So in this instance, Laurel hits me with a hammer. She is traumatized by the fact that she actually hit me with the hammer. Yeah. And in that triangle, and it's not to say that uh, any one person is more or less a victim. Obviously, I think the person with hit on the head with the hammer in this instance is the biggest victim. But the trauma is equitable in Freud's eyes. Everybody is psychologically damaged the same, if not physically damaged the same. Sure. And that is how uh, aggression and trauma and abuse become patterns that grow within families. That's how they pro proliferate, yeah. So you have a abusive husband, a victimized wife, and then the child who witnesses. And that child is also traumatized by witnessing this violence as much as the, the, uh, the parent and the mother are. If we look at the rights, that is, uh, Nicole Kidman, Celeste, Alexander Skarsgård, Perry, we look at their family, they make a, that family, and the show, I think, makes an argument of how do men become bullies? How do men become aggressive to those who can't defend themselves? Is it innate in manness or is it learned? And the, the show asks this question through Jane, most specifically. Jane Chapman, who uh, comes to Monterey with a little less money as a single mom with a you know young kid. Part-time job. Part-time job, who is a product of rape. Uh, and she loves this kid, Ziggy, but Ziggy has been you know, pointed out on day one as being the bully of Amabella, who's the daughter of Laura Dern. So the first impression that she makes in Monterey is that she's the mom of the bully who is violent to other children. And the question that she continues to ask herself is, did my kid do this? He says he didn't. He's a sweet kid. I know him and I know he wouldn't lie to me, but this girl keeps insisting that he did. And I know that he is a product of a union that was violent, that was not consensual, that was coerced, and that hurt me and left me traumatized. So who am I to say that he didn't inherit some gene from this mystery father uh, that perpetuates this cycle? And so it continues to go through her horrible series of thoughts about how she loves this child and he might be the monster um, of he might be a monster who is a product of the monster who raped her. Exactly right. So Jane's uh, concern for her son, Ziggy, is that did he inherit the aggression, in particular towards women? Because the person being bullied is a little girl. So does her son, because the son's father, a bullied woman in a in a, in an adult sense, it's no longer a play thing on the, under the guise of children's and innocence. Once it becomes an adult thing, it becomes a crime, you know, where, uh, and so because she was the victim of a crime where a sexual predator raped her, she wonders, is my son inherently like this? Right. And what we find at the climax of the show, if I may get to the very end of the show, if that's Absolutely. cool with you. Yeah, go ahead. So in the very last scene of the show, we see that Celeste is ready to leave Perry. She's ready to finally, you know, get out of the, the, the hands of this monster. He figures this out. And at a school function in which they are in a costume party where all the men must dress like Elvis and all of the women must dress like Audrey Hepburn. More, More on, on that, that later. later. <laughs> More on that later. Cause we have something to say about that. Um, you know, Perry confronts, uh, confronts his wife, Celeste, at the party. And for the first time, Jane, whose son was the victim of rape, meets Perry. 
realizing that Perry was the man who raped her. Yeah. And that Ziggy is Perry's son. And um, at that moment, we also, or I'm sorry, I got a little ahead of myself. Just before that moment, we learn that um, Nicole Kidman's son, Max, is the bully. Right. So Amabella had just fingered the wrong, uh, wrong kid, and she covered up because yeah, she was afraid. Covered up because she was being told that she would be hurt more if she actually told who was the real bully. And to double down on the idea of trauma, is Max has a twin brother who's not a bully, and the reason he's not a bully that they show in the, in the in, that they uh, display in the show, which is a little simplistic, is when the abuse is happening, Max is there to hear it but his brother has headphones in, so he doesn't hear it. Right. Which is, you know, a little on the nose, but it's saying, hey, because Max witnesses the abuse more than his brother, even though they are genetically identical, only one of them becomes the bully. Only one of them normalizes abuse and normalizes violence and thinks that's how men treat women. The other one is on the iPad. Absolutely, with his headphones in yeah. and doesn't realize what's happening. Yeah. Which is naive. In a real family, they would both know. Absolutely. But to make the argument, the argument is that you have to experience this trauma from a young age to be okay with and to actualize this violence. Just being a product of rape doesn't condemn a man, a boy, to become a man who will be a rapist. Right. You have to witness and see this violence to become that way. It's an argument for will. It's an argument saying, you know, we are masters of our own destiny and we can shape our lives and we're not, you know, destined by our genetics for every single personality trait that we carry. But it also places so much more responsibility and weight on the shoulders of people who who take on the monumental task of raising children, saying, you know, you you may not pass on the gene that that carries your worst uh, insecurity or feature to your children. But if you carry on behaviors that are detrimental to others in front of your children, you will influence them. And I think the show is making this, uh, making this argument pretty clearly by, by showing those twins. Absolutely. And I, I couldn't agree with you more there. And I think it ultimately makes the argument is that we are a product of our environment and if we grow up in a violent environment, even surrounded with the best schools, a beautiful uh, exterior, um, you know, a beautiful environment by all stretches of the imagination. But when we go home and our father's a dick and beats his mother, your kid's going to grow up to be a dick. Right. And, you know, when you when you zoom out and look at this relationship, too, it is a loving mother and father. It's a dad who is very good to his kids who is amazing at at parenting, uh, and yet he carries this secret, he carries this monstrous part of him that he takes out when he thinks doors are closed and no one is watching. So it can be even in the situations that seem the most harmless or that seem you know the most idyllic at a glance uh, can be the most damaging. Yeah, I think it, and you hit on another theme of the show, which is uh, appearances are irrelevant. Absolutely. People can appear one way and be another. People can put on a face in public and everyone can think they know someone and truly not know them. Yeah. And it emphasizes, I think, the true human connection between real friends versus the superficial between the fake friends. Absolutely. And in the end, true sisterhood is what saves the, the, this group of women. Friendships are nature's greatest masterpiece. This takes me to something that I want to talk about with regards to the show, um, which is very much in the uh, sort of thematic uh, lineage of movies like American Beauty that deal with Pax Americana and surface versus reality, uh, you know, appearance versus reality. But I want to uh, take a little bit of a bird's eye view and look at the uh, network that is airing this show, which is HBO. Um, and HBO produces a lot of content and makes a lot of really great uh, original series and then some mediocre original series and then, you know. Everything in between. Everything in between. When you produce as much stuff as them, you're going to have hits and misses. Absolutely. But when we look at the, you know, the breadth of what they have created, they've created some truly uh, revolutionary pieces of television. Um, 
And I particularly say this with regard to uh, just the volume of television they create that uh, features more than one woman lead uh, or features groups of women as uh, lead characters in television shows. So this is the same network that brought us Sex and the City like 20 years ago, which in its time was revolutionary. It had four women as the leads and they talked frankly about sex and sexuality and issues of being a woman in New York and issues of being single women and uh, you know pubic hair and masturbation and things that women did not talk about on television. And it blew people's minds. And it's still, you go back and look at it and you think, wow, it's amazing that this show got on the air. And it was, uh, more than anything, it was about friendship. Uh, it was often about sex and relationships, but more than anything, it was about friendship between these women who, um, when when you look at those four characters, I can't tell you how many BuzzFeed quizzes there are about are you a Carrie, a Samantha, a Miranda, or a Charlotte, but they exemplify what is called the four temperament ensemble. Um, so we're going to go back a little bit to ancient Rome and ancient Greece. Lovely. Let's, and into, let's like, do it. Hippocratic medicine. And I promise this will all make sense uh, when oh, I tie wow. this all in. If people don't know what Hippocratic medicine is, he was the first doctor in the Western sense. Yeah. So the Hippocratic Oath, which is do no harm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can take all the way back to ancient Greece. Yeah. Um, to, uh, I forget his name, but it was a doctor in name Hippocratic, he was like Hippocraticus or whatever. Hippocrates or something. Yeah, and he came up with the oath of medicine, which was a way of medicine for a long time, you know, until... Yeah, code of ethics, yeah. Yeah, until the Dark Ages kind of outdid it, and then it came back in the Renaissance, and is, to date, every doctor takes the Hippocratic oath. Yeah. Um, but yeah. history lesson, <laughs> sorry. But yeah, I want to talk about the four humors, um, which, you know catapult directly into this four temperament ensemble. So um, ancient medicine had this idea that you had four elements in your body, four humors. Uh, One was blood, one was black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm. And those were the elements that made up the human body. And the healthy human body had all four of those in exact balance. You had this perfect homeostasis of those four elements and you had the same amount. Um, but if you had a disease or if you had, uh, you know, a psychological disorder, it was because you were out of balance in one of those four, uh, elements, those four humors. So if you had a sanguine personality, you had too much blood and, uh, you were someone who was very emotional, um, but who was very connected to people. And you would see this, um, this idea of the humors actually creep into storytelling as people create stock characters and archetypes. So you see this in Moliere, in French comedy. Uh, Characters are going to be sanguine or melancholic or uh, choleric or uh, what's the last one? It's phlegmatic. So they're going to have one of these humors out of order and they're going to be a stock character or an archetype that lines up with that. Um, and Sex in the City is a perfect example of one of each of these characters. So I think you should four. Yeah, I think you should define each one. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, awesome. So we have the first one is going to be sanguine, which is too much blood, and that kind of person is extroverted. They are people oriented. They're emotional. They're connected to others, um, and they are going to be um, a little more effervescent in terms of their personality and overbearing. Um, We also have choleric, which means too much yellow bile. That person is also extroverted, but they're going to be a little more unemotional and analytical. Um, So they're going to be a little more task-oriented and maybe a little more type A personalities than the sanguine. Uh, Then we get melancholic, which is black bile. That person is introverted, emotional, and task-oriented. So that person is going to be in their own head, possibly obsessive uh, and and a deep well of emotion. Uh, I'm thinking of like Celeste in Big Little Lies is going to be that character. Then we have phlegmatic, which is too much phlegm, uh, and that's introverted, unemotional, and people-oriented. So they're going to be just a little more analytical, but more inside their own heads than the uh, extroverted person. Very cool. So 
the Four Temperament Ensemble is not uh, distinct, not unique to stories about women, but I do see when we, um, when we confront stories with multiple female characters, they're going to line up more um, two-dimensionally with those uh, archetypes. And Sex in the City is the kind of, it's sort of the mecca of the Four Temperament Ensemble and the Four Women Ensemble. HBO later produces Girls, which is a direct deconstruction of the archetypes in, um, in Sex and the City, and it confronts so, that from episode one. I'm sorry to, to interrupt, just to make sure I understand. Sex and the City is using those archetypes kind of by the script. Right, so the characters in Sex and the City, while they are in a revolutionary show, are going to be pretty much stock characters or archetypes, and they're not going to deconstruct any type of woman too much. You know who a Carrie is, a Samantha, a Miranda, and a Charlotte. You know exactly who that woman is when you say that word. And you might know, might not know, but... Um, I mean, I kind of know. I mean, but I've you kind of know. In and around, I've never actually watched the series. Yeah. I mean, I've watched episodes here and there, but yeah, no, I kind of get that... Each one represents these archetypes, and I really think it's cool how they relate to the four humors of the ancient world. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, what's important to to track on this evolution is that HBO Next produces Girls, which is another show about four women who are friends, uh, and that deliberately and directly deconstructs the archetypes of Sex and the City. On the first episode of Girls, they say, do you think you're a Carrie or a Samantha or a Carrie Samantha or... Uh, they, they know the legacy in which they are working, and they take those archetypes to the next level, show the dark underbelly of those, and then arrive at a place that's deeply cynical about female relationships. Um, and I say this as someone who like loves girls. I think it's a great show. But at the end of that show, you you see it devolve from a place of like your friendships are super important to a place of like, women can't be friends with each other. And this is a troubling trend, in, and not even a trend, it's a troubling uh, legacy of movies and TV and stories about women, is the idea that friendship and true friendship is not possible in groups of women because we're too catty, we're too self-involved, we're too narcissistic, or we're too uh, you know, focused on a particular uh, thing like our career or our children. And where I think big little lies. Damn, wow. Yeah. So I, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I just damn wowed. I didn't mean to throw you off. Keep going. So I'm excited about big little lies because in this legacy of shows about groups of women that take their place as revolutionary in their times on HBO, I think big little lies takes us to a totally different level um, where we are exploring the same archetypes as girls, we're exploring the same archetypes as uh, Sex in the City, uh, but we are deconstructing them and we are reinforcing the idea that women can actually be friends with each other and deeply care about each other and be not self-interested in a way that I have not seen on television. And, and cover up a murder for each other. And cover up a murder for each other. Um, so what I want to dive into are those... And, yeah. Oh, and not only that, I'm sorry to interrupt, that enemies can become friends. Absolutely. And that there is such thing as forgiveness and, uh, and actual compassion and empathy between groups of women, which is unheard of. So I'm just a round of applause in my brain for Big Little Lies for taking that on and for doing that. It's honestly, it's probably my most endearing quality of the show. I love the sort of philosophy and the discussions about aggression, and I love its narrative about that. But at its heart, I really enjoyed that uh, the main character played by Reese Witherspoon, I really like that when we first see this character we think that she is pretty much just kind of a catty, shallow soccer mom. And that by the end of the, the, the series, you know, that you, you really like, you know, there's such a strong emotional core and in such a a complex inner life and in a world of bad people, she's actually one of the best because she's the only one that kind of sticks up for the underdogs. Yeah. You know, and fights for for the underdogs. And I I, I thought that at the end of it, uh, Madeline, Reese Witherspoon's character, you know, three or four episodes in, I'm like, holy shit, this is a really interesting 
and they really subverted the expectation because I thought she was going to be catty and shallow and, you know, driving her, her, her children crazy, which she is, but she ends up being this such amazing and passionate and thoughtful and someone that's able to have real true friends. Yeah. And she's a sanguine personality, right? She is like in your face. Too much blood. She's extroverted and she is super passionate and fiery and emotional. She's a Gryffindor, if you will, which is another four temperament ensemble. Another reason why I like her. Yeah. I like Um, Gryffindors. But this is what Big Little Lies excels in, is setting up expectations and then deconstructing them entirely. And a huge thing that it's doing is taking uh, really powerful and really well-known archetypes of women and then, you know, showing you a totally different side of them. Uh, So Madeline we meet and she, of course, is the like stay-at-home mom who is lordering it all over the other moms and she's the queen bee. And then inside she's got all this doubt and she is, you know, unsure of herself as a mother and she's unsure of herself as a wife. And she's also just fiercely, fiercely loyal to her friends. The same thing happens with Jane when we meet her. We think that she is just the sort of stock character of the down on her luck, you know, woman who comes in from out of town and is mysterious and uh, and we don't know too much about her, but she is like, uh, she has this crazy, you know, backstory and she's going to shake everything up and she kind of fits into that manic pixie dream girl idea at the beginning, but then underneath we find out she's just like everybody else she just wants to have a good life for her kids and she is like riddled with ptsd there is so much going on inside jane that you can't see when you look at her and you just want her to be this pretty picture uh and that's the same with every character in this including you know even renata who is played by laura dern and is kind of a villain Uh, So this is the pattern of Big Little Lies, to set up these archetypes that we recognize and we know about women characters and then subvert them. Yeah, and then break them down to the simplest and uh, raw emotional core, which allows us to empathize with them. I'm glad you mentioned Renata, because for the most most part, she kind of sucks. She's the corporate technology CEO who is, you know, trying to get Ziggy Jane's kid kicked out of school because she thinks that Ziggy is victimizing and bullying her kid, which is not true. And in the end, you know, and all of this hysteria and all of this, like, you know, pointing the finger and who's the real bully, you know, Jane and Renata come to an actual physical fight where, you know, Jane tries to put her eye out. She smacks her upside the head, but misses and pokes her eye. Yeah. You know, and like hurts her eye and Jane comes and has a real human to human moment with Renata. And then when Renata is talking to her husband a few scenes later, she's like, you know, the only person in this town that I actually connect with is Jane. And what to me, I read that and stop me if I'm crazy. If you try to connect with another human, you can even if that person is your enemy, even if you've gouged out their eye almost, you know, like, but if you go to that person hand in hat and say, I want to see what you're seeing and I want to feel, and I want to be empathetic and I actually want to communicate with you. You can. And because of that, Renata stops being the sort of protagonist in this drama. Antagonist. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Antagonist in this drama. Thank you. Um, And then, at the very end of the movie, she's there, helps, and covers up the murder. Yeah, she's defending, and she is part of the pack. She's part of this lion pack that has developed, uh, and she's able to apologize for her behavior and you know, take on a level of, of grace that's unseen by her character until that moment, and that's unseen on TV. Um, and it's so characterized by the end where all the women are hanging out at the beach. Oh my God. Beautiful scene it where really they're all is. friends and their kids are all friends and it's all forgiven. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about one more thing with regards to big little lies. Oh sure. And that's of course the gala. Um, as we said, we promised a little more information on the Elvis and Audrey, uh, night, which when I first watched this show, this show, I was like, what a stupid and yet like exactly like a PTA meeting to do is be like, let's have it be Elvis Presley and Audrey Hepburn themed. It's just like dumb. It makes no sense. Elvis and Audrey literally never met. 
and they have nothing to do with each other. They were in totally different fields and there's no reason for them to be a theme for a night. So great. It just sounds exactly like what a PTA would do. Really? Um, really? So to me, I, I read that as no PTA in their right mind would ever have a costume party to begin with. Oh, sure. Right? But like, like a Monterey pop, uh, cost, or a PTA, yeah. Yeah, but Elvis and Audrey Hepburn was just so bizarre. It's so bizarre. Um, but on the part of the storytellers and Leanne Moriarty, who is the, um, who's the author of the original novel that it was based on, uh, this is extremely purposeful and extremely important for us to, uh, to unpack a little bit because you, if you're going to come up with a pairing that ridiculous, there's got to be a reason behind it. And where I'm falling with this is that of course, Elvis and Audrey in their times were regarded as pretty much paragons of masculinity and femininity of certain types. Elvis was a sex symbol. Elvis was a symbol of like the perfect heterosexual male, even though he had a little bit of androgyny. Um, and he was also just a little too edgy for the you know normal girl to be in love with. So he had a little bit of, of fear and violence in him, right? Yeah, a little bit of bad boy. Yeah, so to have every man... Nothing but a hound dog. Yeah, to have every man dress up as Elvis is telling for a story that looks at um, men and women's relationships and the violence that occurs sometimes in those relationships. Um, But more importantly, the idea to have every woman dress up as Audrey Hepburn is super, super purposeful in this story. And if we look at our five female leads... Um, who are Madeline, Renata, Jane, Celeste, and Bonnie, uh, and the characters that they dress up as are Audrey's two most iconic roles. Uh, three of them are going to dress up as Holly Golightly from Breakfast at Tiffany's, and two of them are going to dress up as Eliza Doolittle from My Fair Lady. Now, both of these characters are going to represent uh, two very, at this point, negative archetypes of women and as endearingly and iconically as they are played by Audrey Hepburn whom I love I think she is one of the greatest actresses to have ever graced the stage or screen Um, but these two characters have set really weird um, precedents for women on screen Uh, Holly Golightly from Breakfast at Tiffany's is the ultimate and original manic pixie dream girl uh, who if you're not familiar with that term uh, is the like Natalie Portman from Garden State or um, Kirsten Dunst from Elizabethtown or the whims- Zoe Deschanel or Zoe in everything. Deschanel in anything is the whimsical, um, you know, very two dimensional but free spirited girl who opens up the mind of the more uh, you know closed down guy, uh, and she pretty much exists only in the mind of the man who creates her and who needs her to broaden his horizons. And she's just a an all-too-well-known trope in these days, and we're pretty much sick of her. Um, so Holly Golightly very much represents that. And Eliza Doolittle is part of the uh, legacy of Pygmalion, which is the play that um, My Fair Lady is based on, which is about, and it's based on a Greek myth, where a guy literally molds a woman out of clay so that he can marry her. And My Fair Lady is about a man who takes a cockney girl off the streets and turns her into royalty so that, you know, she can be his little plaything. It's pretty woman. It's she's all that. It's this story of saving a woman from nothingness and creating her in your own image. And Big Little Lies is so concerned with showing you what's underneath these historically two-dimensional and and underrepresented tropes of women that to put all of its characters in the costumes, in the iconic costumes of those characters, of Eliza and Holly at the end, and then have them come together and throw a guy down the stairs is insane. And it's magical. And it sort of redeems those characters in a way for me. Um, I don't know how you feel about that moment, but yeah, I mean, I think that is well said and I totally agree. The thing that I would add on top of it is that the school as the representation of the community in that scene, as the village, the place where everyone comes together, um, in the attempt to rear and create the next generation in order to lull the rich, sophisticated, uh, community of Monterey, 
They ask them to dress as the ultimate man and ultimate woman. Yeah. They ask them to don and play um, these roles of sexuality and both weaponized forms. And then we see it end in violence. When you've weaponized sexuality um, for the sake of raising money for school, which is at glance an altruistic purpose, it ends up culminating you know, symbolically to where it can only go, which is violence. And that perchance it's time for us to look at our idols, our, our, our archetypes of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and say, no, you know, and say, no, that that is not what it means to be a man or a woman anymore. Cause maybe that's, maybe that's done more harm than good to our society. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know the answer to that, but I know that there are plenty of people with red magma hats on who love the fact that our president hates women and treats them like shit. Whew. Yeah. And that's a shame. I, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, and I think Big Little Lies is exposing that, that impulse. That Big Little Lie. That Big Little Lie. <laughs> I'm going to see what you did there. Um, yeah. Uh, so much more to say. Uh, just to say one more thing. Yeah. Just cause I, I, we can't do a big little lies podcast without addressing it, which is the problem of Bonnie. Um, everything that I've laid out so far about deconstructing archetypes, I think is central to, uh, why big little lies is so successful in its portrayal of women in relationships. And, uh, and this is ground that has been tread before by so many others. So I would recommend you go, go check out the, uh, Vulture article and the Slate article that addressed this when um, it first came out. But Bonnie, uh, as played by Zoe Kravitz, is the only woman of color who is a main character on the show, and she's the only character who does not get her own perspective of this, uh, you know, this drama that plays out. And she is dressed as Eliza Doolittle in the end. And spoiler alert, if you've made it this far, uh, she is the one who pushes the, you know, she deals the final blow. She to kills Perry. Perry. She pushes him down the yeah. stairs. Um, and so it is kind of a shame that throughout the show, she is displayed um, as this ultra perfect, um, very non-complex, very simple character who is pretty much set up to antagonize Madeline um, and who is only created out of the impressions of other people about her, which are mostly negative. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's tragic that she is the character who plays such a key role in the end and who is yet not even afforded a perspective on the show. Um, and this is something that I know that the showrunners and the writer have addressed. Um, they're talking about season two and writing, a, you know, a lot more interesting stuff for her character. They've listened to the criticism and they want to do better. Um, but it's certainly an important thing to address here, which is that if a show is going to be so concerned and so in conversation with female archetypes and deconstructing them and subverting them, then it can't have, you know, a key player who is also the only woman of color never deconstruct those archetypes and only live as a manic pixie dream girl. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in 2018, right. Yeah. You know, like, like, come on, especially where we're at now. And, you know, we, we talked about this at length before we started recording, you know, give us like, maybe 30 or 40 minutes of what she's thinking and feeling like one more episode. Nobody would have complained. And she doesn't have to be the main character because she's sort of on the periphery. So like, you don't have to force her as the most important character of the show, but if she's going to do the most important thing at the end, we need to know how she feels about it. Yeah. And what she thinks. And like, so what motivated her to, instead of calling the police, uh, assault a man and kill him who's beating, you know, three women. Right. Why did she make that choice? We really don't know. And it is a, a shame in the show that we don't know why she made that choice because we never saw her perspective on any of this. Yeah. So hopefully this is something that season two will uh, try to answer for us. And I'm excited that there is a season two. Right. Because realistically, when someone sees, you know, someone beating three other people. Yeah. You don't get in and push them off the stairs. You call the cops. You call the cops. Yeah. She made a radical choice and it's the right choice 
for the show to make, but... It, but we don't understand it. It's not the right choice for the character to make. And because we never see from her perspective, it's hard to, to really truly understand in this crucial moment what she's going through. So the lesson there is, is A, you know, flesh that out if that's a major-ish plot point of the show. B, in the idea of breaking down stereotypes, it is telling and, you know, just a little like, really? Like, you know, the one you know, person of color in the whole show, we don't really know what they're thinking or feeling ever. Yeah. It's like, really? Like, when you got everything else right, you got that wrong? Yeah, that's that's the shame about it, is that everything else is so right. And for, for me, and I realize this is a position of privilege. From my privileged position, I can say that that doesn't ruin the show for me. Yeah, absolutely. But if it did for someone, I totally would, would instead of telling them they're wrong because I like the show, I'd rather tell me why, you know, like I'd like to hear why it, it did ruin it for you. It didn't ruin it for me because I'm a privileged white dude and everything is about <laughs> me in Hollywood. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm not, and I'm not bragging. I'm not saying that's good. You know. No, I, I got you. Yeah. Um, speaking of letting us know how you feel about Big Little Lies, please get in contact with us if you have any thoughts about the podcast or the episode that we just gave you. Um, we would love to continue the conversation on our social media. You can check us out on Facebook if you search The Midnight Myth Podcast. You can tweet us at The Midnight Myth on the Twitters. Uh, and you can visit us on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Uh, we also have a website, www.midnightmyth.com, where you can drop us a line with the contact form there. Uh, yeah, we would love to hear from you. Any thoughts that you have about the podcast so far or any suggestions for things you want to hear in the future? Um, and if you like what you have been hearing on the podcast so far, please check us out on Apple Podcasts. Hit subscribe if you haven't already, and then leave us a re uh, rating and a review if you can. It really, really helps us get out there, and we are so grateful for everyone who has done so thus far. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.